0: Aaron and I want to start with a really big heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full-time, and this is this is a full-time gig on top of it, and we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet-talked the folks with com, and as a thank-you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever-so-handsome goose and a bear, and that person will get a free PodCore subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed, plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday. And the short course, nine series long All Things Ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC SLP, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward. MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fun and functional categories. And I'm excited to introduce our guest, none other than the amazing Carrie Ebert, MSCCC SLP. The Carrie behind Carrie Ebert Seminars. Hint, 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 you can find her on her Facebook page or her website, which has like everything you need to find inspiration for early intervention. Again, because we all need the inspiration. Carrie is a passionate pediatric SLP focusing on early intervention and apraxia. She's an autism mama, a proud defender of play, a breast cancer survivor an author, a professional speaker, and as she says, a frequent flyer. And she's like basically a one-stop shop for evidence-based practice resources. Whether you're new to the area of early intervention or like me, you have some gray hairs on top. Um, Thank you. Thank you to my hairstylist. You can't see them as much today. But like, I seriously am fangirling. I love following her on her Instagram account under the handle of at Carrie Ebert seminars because y'all her posts are relatable and fun. My personal favorites are her Sunday a day because she is a boy mom and she shares those raw moments of joy and triumph in the face of fear. I know we have said it often here on first bite, but y'all fear is a liar And Carrie's walk of being an EI SLP and then raising a handsome young man and being honest about her walk as an autism mama. Well, it touches my heart and it inspires me. So, yes, I am fangirling because y'all, she is here. Okay, so Carrie, hi and welcome. And I have so many questions like, what made you be an SLP and how did you get into the world of early intervention? But like, I will stop talking because I'm very excited, but thank you for coming.
1: Thank you. I appreciate this so much, and I am very excited to uh, be a guest. Uh, So yeah, I um, have been a speech-language pathologist for 25 years, and when I first got out of grad school in 1995, I worked with the geriatric population, primarily uh, interested in patients with Alzheimer's, so I worked like in the memory care units, and then after I had my own children, I got very fascinated just in the development of young children, and so so now i do early intervention so i always say i've worked with the very very old and the very very young and nothing in between so
0: <laughs> I, I i did a i think a 6 week stint um at a nursing home and uh-huh. um my grandma my grandmother helped raise me and i just couldn't i just wanted to hug all the old people I'm Yes, like, this is not for me i cannot go around hugging everybody yes Well, so, I like, found my niche in early intervention definitely uh, That's awesome. Okay. So now how many children do
1: you have? So uh, my husband, Jim, and I, we have two daughters. Uh, Whitney is a senior in college and she is going to be a nurse and she just got married on December 27th. So I got to be the mother of the bride, one of the coolest things, uh, you know, to date in my life. It was so fun, very expensive, but very fun. Uh, and then we have another daughter, Allison, and she's a junior in college and she's going to be a teacher. Uh, so, uh, the girls were actually born 11 months apart and I don't really recommend that method, but, um, that's um, how that's
0: Irish <laughs> twins in my family. <laughs>
1: yes, that's exactly. So 11 months apart. So we thought we were kind of done having kids, had two, you know, kids, right? Uh, bang, bang. And, um, God had other plans. So seven years later, our son was born and, um, uh, his name is Aaron and, Uh, Aaron uh, has, he's now 15, uh, but Aaron has autism, apraxia, and sensory processing disorder. So my son uh, has taught me so much about my profession and is my biggest inspiration for everything that I do.
0: Well, I, I really do appreciate your Sunday a day post on Instagram. Like they're the ones that I look forward to Okay. So if for y'all, if you haven't, if you, if you don't follow her, um, she takes a, a raw look at autism on, on Sundays, every Sunday, but, uh, but she does it from a, um, a very uplifting, joyful, uh, point of reference. And, Y'all, the closer we get to November, the more unpleasant my personal news feed gets. So I just start erasing things on on all fronts and like, no, I don't need to see this. So there's a whole lot more puppies, joyful, inspirational posts like Carrie's and flowers. There's a lot of flowers in my feed as of late. So like, if you know a good gardening Instagram account, please be sure to tag me in it. I appreciate that. I love it. <laughs> But yes. Okay. So we are here, your specialty is early intervention and Correct. we are here specifically to talk about best practice for early intervention. Mm-hmm. And um, like you and I had a sidebar conversation beforehand, there's a bunch of obstacles to the perception or to, to defeat. To the, yeah. Yes. And so, um yeah, to like to beat out the misconception about best practice and best practice is coaching. But um, can you explain, explain us there? And then let's take a peek at the obstacles. Yeah, you bet. I, I mean,
1: I guess one of the most interesting things to me about working in the birth to three world, working in early intervention, is that those of us who do it, we love little kids. I mean, if you were bothered by snotty noses or stinky diapers, you know, or didn't like kids crawling on you, or if for some reason you hated blowing bubbles, <laughs> um, you know, you wouldn't work in early intervention, right? So I always say we're kid people. You work in early intervention because you like little kids. But I think one of the most ironic things about early intervention is this, the people we are actually supposed to be focusing on the most is the parents. And that's very ironic because we get into this to work with infants and toddlers, and yet the people we focus on uh, is actually the caregivers, the adults. And so um, the main reason we do that, so this is my big thing here, is we have to acknowledge and truly understand how infants and toddlers learn best because these are not just tiny adults. Okay, When we talk about infants and toddlers, you can't provide services the same way you provide services to a seven-year-old or a 17-year-old or a 57-year-old. the only issue with infants and toddlers isn't that they're short, right? That's not their only issue. Their issue is, right, that they have a developing nervous system. That we are They are still in the developmental period of life. And so the main thing I try to get across, especially to parents to get them to buy into early intervention, is that infants and toddlers don't wake up in the morning and make decisions that benefit their development. Who does? That's the caregiver parent. Right. They wake up and make decisions that will actually benefit their child's development. So that's why in early intervention, we are supposed to be using a support based services model. And so in a support based services model, we are not there, contrary to popular belief, to fix the child's deficits. I know that's what most parents expect from us. Right. No,
0: say it again. Uh, To quote my friend, uh, to quote my friend Anna Grace, say it for the people in the back. (laughs) I love it. Okay, so in early
1: intervention, okay, so many times parents think that we're there to fix the child's deficits, and that is not what early intervention is about. We are not a deficit-driven model. Okay, that's the medical model where you go in, you do a standardized test, you write goals from the standardized test based on the child's deficits, and then you go in and remediate deficits. Okay, that is not early intervention and so this is why i think there's so much backlash to coaching and i think why people claim it doesn't work is because people providers us slps anybody who works in ei we're trying to go in under the medical model right go in and fix deficits sorry that's not what what early intervention is okay so when we use a support based services model there are three relationships that we need to foster okay three relationships here we go one is between the provider the SLP, let's say, and the child, right? And I would say that's the easiest relationship for us because we're kid people. We wouldn't work in pediatrics if we weren't kid people. So we've got that relationship, no problem. The second relationship is between the provider and the parent. That's a very challenging relationship, especially if parents don't buy into coaching, right? Yeah. And then the third relationship is between the parent and the child.
0: Which can also be very difficult when there's PTSD and those Oh, factors. absolutely.
1: When there's so many things going on. And that's why, you know, we will talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and things like that today when we talk about barriers. Um, in my On my website, um, one thing I want to mention is I have my Coaching the Caregiver in Early Intervention handout series. And it's 54 handouts. And all of the information that I'm going to share with you today comes from one of the handouts, you know, because this is a huge issue. Um, the other thing I have on my website is my uh, self-study course called effective strategies for coaching the caregiver and so um, I'm just pulling information from resources you know that I do have available um, but when we have a support based services model, you have these three relationships, but the most important relationship is the one between the parent and the child. And that is very hard for us as professionals because in the medical model, the primary, the most important relationship is the one between us and the child, right? I have to, I'm the um, agent of change. So I'm gonna come in and fix these deficits and I have to document progress. And it's all about me, me, me. But in early intervention, that's not the primary relationship, okay? Um, I am the expert in um, you know addressing communication disorders, right? That's my area of expertise. But the parent is the expert on their child. The parent is the expert on their family, on their routines and on their concerns. So that's why if I were going to call this, you know, if I had to name this, this little talk that we're having, I would call it, it takes two to tango, you know, that I'm the expert in this, uh, this area of concern of child development, but the parent is the expert on everything else.
0: But unfortunately, what I've seen is that a lot of people, especially within the medical community, discredit or don't listen to what the parents have to say on their kids. Right. Right. Absolutely. And and so often, y'all, you have to focus on that building the relationship with the parent because they've and I don't know. I've seen it tied to socioeconomic status. I've seen it tied to the fact that we're female. Um, uh, Physicians will dismiss and or go through a more of like a patriarchal approach in a lot of their office sessions. So they get in, they tell the family what's wrong, and they don't listen to different signs and symptoms that could evolve or change uh, etiology or concomit disorder. So just a soapbox you said that you like your soapboxes I have a few that's one of them I have oh and you know you know one of my my
1: favorite hashtags on social media is hashtag let's just see because nothing bothers me more than when a pediatrician says well let's just wait and see because I'm always like well what are you waiting for this little child is going through the biggest period of brain development right this is when most of the synaptic connections are being made in the brain so if the parent reports a concern and the child is 18 months old and the parent says I'm really concerned because little Joey isn't talking much. And the pediatrician dismisses it and says, well, let's just give him six months and see how he's doing when he's two. I have a real problem with that because knowing what we know about brain development, this is why early intervention even exists. We should be, what the pediatrician should be saying is, oh, you have a concern? Well, as the expert on your child, then let's just see what's happening. So that's hashtag let's just see. Make the referral so that an early intervention expert can actually assess the child and determine, is this child just lagging behind. Is it truly just a delay? Because kids who truly have just a delay will likely catch up on their own once properly stimulated. Or is this child presenting with an actual disorder, at which point it's going to require therapy and intervention? You know, so they leave it up to the professionals, the the specialists in the field to decide when, when to wait and see and when we need to take action. So that's one of my soapboxes is hashtag let's just see.
0: I'm only laughing because we were at a Mardi Gras parade. You know, when you work in the world of early intervention, little ones find you, right? Like you're like the magnet for every child that has a language delay. And we're there on Saturday at a Mardi Gras parade and... Um, a tiny human finds me and I start talking and I realize he's not talking back. And so I start signing and I realize he's not signing back. And I'm like, all right, cool. We have a thing. There's a thing. And the mom comes over and she goes, I'm so sorry. We just moved to the area. And our pediatrician said everything's fine. And just to come back in six months, but he's really not talking. And I'm like, so you don't know me. Let's talk let's about talk. this. <laughs> let's let's have us have crossed. I <laughs> yes. Love it. You know, just, yeah, so the randomness. Okay. All right. So what are, (laughs) squirrel, what (laughs) are our three primary obstacles to coaching the caregiver? Okay.
1: Well, before I talk to you about obstacles, because I do have three primary obstacles, but can we just start with making sure we're defining what coaching actually is? Yes, that would be. Okay. So- before we talk about obstacles to coaching I really want to define coaching but here's the problem Michelle before we define coaching I want to talk to you about adult learning because we are now talking about adult learning we are talking about coaching the caregiver not doing direct therapy with you know the very young child so here's what adults need when we start talking about adult learning they need to link new learning to prior knowledge so what we're going to do is we're actually going to ask caregivers to reflect on what they already know about a situation so reflect becomes reflection becomes a key component of coaching. Um, The second thing adults need is they need learning to be relevant and useful. So if they don't understand why doing this specific strategy, you know, is going to somehow, you know, uh, support their child's learning and development, if they don't understand how it relates to their daily life, if it doesn't somehow make their life easier or better, um, they're going to have a really tough time, you know, addressing it. So we need to make sure learning is relevant and useful. The third thing is adults learn through hands-on experiences. They don't just learn through observation. So let me give you an analogy here, because I think this is a really important concept. As a professional speaker, I travel almost every week, which means I stay in a lot of hotels. And the only thing really to do in a hotel, okay, is, um, I mean, I suppose, you know, you can eat and go to the bar. But once you're to your room, the only thing really to do is to watch TV. And here's the issue. I'm not a TV watcher. I don't know any shows. I just, I don't follow shows. I'll, I'll binge a little Netflix here and there, but I'm not really a TV show watcher. So here's what I do when I'm in my hotel room. I put on HGTV because that's a station that you know I can watch for a couple hours, and it doesn't require a ton
0: of. I cannot. HGTV makes me get inspired, and then I like start Marie Kondoing things. and And Mr. Dawson has said no more house projects. It's costing a fortune. Yes, yeah. continue, but not I for love me. It.
1: So I watch some HGTV. So I've been a professional speaker for over 10 years, which means I have logged hundreds of hours in front of HGTV. So here's the deal. If adults could learn by simply observing somebody else do something, then one would assume that I am a master carpenter, right? Because I have logged hundreds of hours in front of HGTV. I should be able to remodel my bathroom and retile the kitchen, and I should be a, a pro at putting up ship lap, right? And here's the deal, I can't do any of that stuff. I still can't use a power tool. I have no idea how to tile, even though I have watched it being done over and over and over. See, you don't learn a skill by watching somebody else do it, okay? You learn by actually um, uh, practicing, by actually uh, using, uh, you know, doing it yourself. So it's that hands-on experience. So this is why when I think of the way early intervention used to be, I used to go into the home with my bag of toys, sit on the floor, work directly with the child, and where was the parent? Oh, maybe observing from the couch if I was lucky. If they stayed in the room, doing laundry, yeah, doing laundry, getting mm-hmm. the dinner ready in the crock pot. You know, maybe running and jumping in the shower real quick. I mean, I had one parent who was so bold; she asked if she could run to the grocery store while I was there. You know, so oh my God. so, oh my so God. the point is, is parents don't, adults don't learn by watching other people do things. If you want to learn to play the piano and you watch somebody play the piano for a year, do you know how to play the piano? No, of course not. That's not how adults learn. So we have to understand that adults learn through hands-on experiences. And the fourth thing that adults need is, is they need to be able to learn through practice and feedback. So here comes our second really important word, which is refine. So when I talk about coaching, it's about reflect and refine. What I'm going to ask caregivers to do, parents to do, is reflect on what they already know about their child's situation, about their learning and development. I'm going to ask them what things they've already tried to support their struggling learner. I'm going to ask them if those strategies didn't work that you tried? Why do you think they didn't work? And what other things do you think you want to try instead? That's all called reflect, right? And then what we're going to do is together, we're going to try to refine the way the caregiver interacts with the child to support that child's special needs, right? Those, those unique needs that, um, you know, they're going to need something more than what they perhaps did with their other children. So coaching is all about first reflect and then refine. It's powerful.
0: I'm just thinking of all the times we've, uh, all the parents that have tried to step out or step away. And I think the request for showers is probably the most prevalent, especially when there's another new tiny human in the room. But Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we talk about adult learning, then we have different approaches that we can use. We have coaching. We have consulting. There's something called mentoring. There's counseling that that focuses more on feelings. And then there's direct teaching. So we don't have time. We only have, you know, like an hour to talk. So the two approaches I really want to discuss are the difference between coaching and consulting. Because for years, I'm in the state of Missouri, and we've been using coaching for about a decade now. And I remember when we first um, started coaching, and I would say, you know, I tried it for a while, and I would come home and complain to my husband that coaching doesn't work. I might as well bang my head against the wall, because it would do about as much good as me leaving these strategies for parents. Because when I come back the next week and ask them how those strategies went, parents always say the same thing. Oh, they didn't work. I forgot. We didn't have time. And so I was really struggling. And I was of the mindset that coaching doesn't work. Well, then I learned about something called consulting. And I started to understand that coaching and consulting are two different approaches. So here's the difference. Coaching is a non-hierarchical collaborative partnership. I know that's a mouthful, but think about it. It's non-hierarchical. So I am no better than the parent. We are at the same level because we are a partnership between the professional and the parent. And what we do is we work together to increase the parent's competence and confidence to support their child's learning and development during everyday routines and interactions. So that's coaching. Now, consulting is a hierarchical relationship in which the expert, who's the expert, the SLP, the provider, right? So the expert gathers information, identifies and analyzes problems, and then, are you ready for this? Dispenses professional recommendations on how to fix those problems. So consulting is a top-down fashion. I'm the expert, I'm gonna tell you what's wrong, and I'm gonna tell you how to fix your problems, okay? So here's what happens when you use consulting as the primary adult learning approach. The parent starts to defer to us as the expert, so when we ask, "What are you concerned about? What kind of goals do you want to work on or outcomes?" the parent will defer and say, "Well, you're the expert, Miss Carrie. Whatever you want to work on is fine with me. I'm not a speech therapist, so you, you know." So they start looking to us. They defer to us as the expert, and then what they want is for us to fix the child. I mean, what do they want? They want you to teach the kid to talk, right? Or they want you to get him um, eating solid foods. Do they want him, you know, you to get him to uh, be able to, um, you know, not have so. Many uh, tantrums in a day because he needs to communicate more. Whatever it is, they're looking for us to fix their problems. So here's a a great way of thinking of it. When I was really struggling uh, 10 years ago with do I want to stay in early intervention? Because I'm telling you, this coaching rocked my world early on. And so one weekend, I was really analyzing, you know, what's my role as an early interventionist? And this is what I thought of. Okay. Do you know the saying that says, um, if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day? but teach teach Amanda Fish Fish, and he eats for a lifetime. lifetime. And that is when I had this aha moment. And I started understanding that we as providers should stop seeing us as the agents of change. It's not about what I do, 45 minutes once a week or an hour once a week. It's about what happens in between those home visits, in between those therapy sessions is when the true learning happens. So one way to really wrap your brain around the importance of of coaching is this. Learning for the parent happens during our therapy session, but learning for the child happens between therapy sessions.
0: Oh, that's
1: good. That's how you wrap your brain around this, okay? Because very young children, toddlers, one, two, three year old kids, they don't learn in 30 minute lessons or 60 minute lessons like an adult or an older child can. So, what coaching does is it forces us to kind of listen, A, listen to the parents, right? Because they are the experts on their child, ask them what things they've already tried. We have to ask them, remember, it's reflect and refine. So, you have to be able to ask reflective questions. And I mean, we could spend, five podcasts, you know, sessions trying to go over all of this. It's, it's really important information, but the main thing coaching forces us to do is stop asking, have you tried? Have you tried? So let me give you an example. Let's say parent says, Gosh, you know, giving my child a haircut is really hard. I mean, he just flips out when we try to give him a haircut. It's really in our nature to just want to say, oh, have you tried giving him a toy to distract him? Have you tried having him sit on your lap during the haircut? Have you tried giving him, um, uh, you know, your phone to play with or watch a movie during the haircut? So that's that have you tried habit. But I'm telling you, that's consulting. That's where you're already throwing out solutions to problems. So when we do coaching, here's, what, here's how it changes. Listen to how different this is and how much better it is. Oh, my gosh, you know, Ms. Carrie, I'm really struggling. So we try to give him a haircut. You know, it's just awful. And I say, oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. What things have you already tried to help um, your child during haircuts? And then the most amazing thing happens because you sit silent because you just asked an open-ended question. So now who's doing the talking? The parent,
0: the caregiver, they can they have an t- opportunity to event.
1: Yes. Yeah, so instead of saying "Have you tried? Have you tried? Have you tried?" you ask, "Oh, tell me what you've already tried." It is the most powerful thing, and it will change the entire um, uh, uh, the, the entire way that your your session and your conversation is going to go. Okay.
0: Active listening. It's amazing. That is one yeah. thing that we are not trained in in the world which you'd think being speech pathologists and our specialty being communication we would know how to actively listen no we suck at this no offense ladies and gents this is the truth but um there are really good resources out there and available to teach you more about active listening. Uh, and one that I will repeatedly go back to just because it did me such a, a wealth of good, the ASHA leadership development program. Oh, I know okay. that they, they have the whole year is talking and training on the leadership development, like how to, a huge part of that is how to be a better listener, but there are specialty classes, um, So that if you don't want to apply for the year-long cohort, Uh they have just like nugget-sized classes, like a 30-minute here, an hour-long here under their leadership umbrella page on their website. Y'all check them out because a lot of them, they'll even do as like freebies frequently. Uh But it's kind of cool to hear about active listening taught from the perspective of SLPs. That's fabulous.
1: Yes. I like that. Okay. Squirrel. Continue. Very good. Sorry. Okay, cool. So I thought what I'd do before we get into the barriers is I'm just going to give you a definition of coaching as it applies to early intervention. And so this is from Rush and Sheldon, and they are two of the biggest names in early intervention. Um, Dathan Rush is an SLP and Melissa Sheldon is a physical therapist and they um, have partnered and they do amazing work. But here's their definition of coaching. It's an interactive process that promotes a caregiver's ability to support a child's participation, learning and development in everyday experiences and interactions. Now, that's a mouthful, so I'm going to give you my abbreviated definition of coaching because this is how I explain it to families, to you know anybody who wants to, to hear this. Um, I define coaching as a method for transferring our skills and knowledge to the caregiver because really that's what this is all about. Um, early intervention is a capacity-building program, which means we are there to increase the competence and confidence of the caregiver. We're not there to fix deficits.
0: Mm-hmm. Mhm.
1: So, that's kind of my spiel and then I would love to share you, with you what I think are three of the primary barriers to success when using coaching. Are we are you cool with that? I yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, I think one of the primary barriers is getting parents to buy into coaching versus direct therapy. What do you think?
0: Um My biggest barrier from parents here locally is that they are used to the bring a bag of toys model. So when I walk in the door and I'm bagless, Mm -hmm. the first question is, well, where are your toys? And I'm like, no, thank you. (laughs) But like, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so
1: getting parents to buy in, lack of follow through, and then I'm going to talk to you about the toy bag. Those are going to be my three little topics here as far as the three primary barriers to success. So I'm just going to go if you're cool with that. Absolutely. Um, Okay. So getting parents to buy into coaching versus direct therapy. So the primary purpose of early intervention is to enhance the parents' ability to support their child's learning and development during everyday you know routines and interactions. So the purpose of early intervention is not to fix the child's deficits, right? We said that earlier. I just think it's important to reiterate that if families don't know the purpose of EI, they are going to challenge what you're doing. So they need to understand who the primary and most important teacher is for a child, and that is always the parent, right? They are often looking at us as, oh, you're the expert, so you're gonna come in and fix these deficits. And I always think of it as, I don't have a magic wand, just because I have a lot of initials after my name. I wish
0: not, I did, yeah, it I would be I glittery, I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> right, I mean, absolutely I wish I did, but I don't have one. So let me say this, if the family's perception of what should be happening during your EI sessions doesn't match what is actually happening, then the family is not going to buy in to your approach, okay? So one of the things that I think is so important is that we find out if the family already has a preconceived notion of what therapy should look like. So one of the things that, you know, I ask is I say, have you ever received any therapy or has your son or older daughter, anybody ever had therapy? And sometimes you'll get things like this. Oh yeah. Um, my husband hurt his shoulder at work or his knee at work and he had to go to physical therapy for eight weeks. Okay. My older daughter had to get speech therapy. We took her to the clinic down the street. Okay. Let's talk about what that therapy looked like. Well, as a parent, if you take your child to therapy, you may wait in the waiting room right? And your child goes off with the therapist, or maybe you wait behind a one-way mirror, but certainly the parent is not actively involved in the therapy session. If you're an adult and you go to physical therapy, you know, they give you homework to work on at home, do these exercises at home. So if the parent has a preconceived notion of what therapy should look like, and you're a speech therapist, then they're going to be really concerned when you come in and you just start talking to them. And they're like, well, when are you going to start working on my kid, right? They want want answers. They want to understand it. So I think sometimes the lack of buy-in comes from a lack of understanding of what early intervention
0: even is. And please, please make sure that when you're establishing this buy-in that especially when you have an interpreter involved, make sure that there's double check for the breakdown in communication. And one of the things where we work, sorry, um, we have a lot of, myself included, monolingual SLPs that are working with bilingual kiddos. And uh, one of the, the most amazing recommendations that was given to me is that, don't forget, we have different regional dialects in English. There's different regional dialects, even within Spanish. So make sure that If you have a family that you're working with that's from one Central American country, try to find an interpreter from the same because – Different word that one word pronounced a different inflection means something different in Spanish, and so um, just as as a heads up because I have had that misconstrued when I walked in just like you said after another SLP had worked with an older sibling because the older sibling had gone through Lissel A V T therapy and I was doing something completely different with the younger sibling so. Luckily, we had a really, really good interpreter.
1: (laughs) Great, great, great. So, yeah, if there's no buy in, then there are three, maybe more, but here are three things that I think families may do. One is they may, may request more therapy from you. So they're like, oh, well, you only come once a week and all you do is talk to me. So maybe you should come twice a week and then maybe you could actually have time to work with my kid. The second thing they may do is request a different provider. So they may actually. You know, quote unquote, fire you. And they'll be like, yeah, I don't know if this lady doesn't know what she's doing or what, but can you send in somebody who really, you know, who knows how to work with kids? And then the third thing they may do is seek outside services. So they're like, well, I'm not going to tell my early intervention provider because I really like her, but I'm going to go see if I can get real therapy at that clinic down the street. So they're looking at what we're doing as not being real therapy, right, as it being something that is substandard or subpar compared to traditional therapy. So that's why we have to make sure that uh, we spend thoughtful time in the very beginning making sure parents know what they're signing up for when they sign up for early intervention. Okay? Yes. Yes. So the second barrier to success in early intervention, um, and I'm gonna give you some strategies for all these, but we'll get through the barriers first. Uh, The second barrier to success is lack of follow through by parents. And I think this is where we as providers, sometimes we're like, I just don't get it. You know, the parent says they're concerned about this. I give them all these strategies and then they don't follow through. And so when we start looking at lack of follow through in early or, you know, from the parent, let me uh, get my notes here because I have some really great notes on, on this. Um, the main obstacle that I think we have to acknowledge is, uh, resistance to change. Okay. And so a lot of times what you'll hear parents say is they'll have excuses for maybe, um, or maybe, you know, explanations or excuses for why they didn't follow through. So, you know, I come in and I say, Oh, how did it go? You know, this past week with Blank strategy or whatever. And the parent might say something like, oh, well, we tried, but or, oh, we just didn't have time for that. Or, oh, we've had a really busy week or, oh, that just doesn't work with Sam. Or I think the most honest one is, oh, were we supposed to be doing that? You know, that kind of, Uh I forgot, right? So, Uh Yeah. So when we have this lack of follow through, um, we are going to have issues because the child isn't going to make progress, because then what happens is if we're expected to be the one to fix deficits and we only come once a week, so the child only practices this skill once a week. You understand that it's going to be really difficult for the child to make progress. So that lack of follow-through by parents is going to be a huge barrier. And I have so many fabulous strategies for you on this, okay? And then uh, the third barrier then is the toy bag. And I'm just going to come right out and say it. It is a huge barrier barrier and uh, so much of the time what I hear providers in early intervention say is well I have to bring in a bag of toys because a lot of the families when I go to their home they don't have toys they don't have books they don't have much so I have to bring those in so but you don't and I know you're going to get there but no leave the bag alone (laughs) yes we're going to I'm going to yeah we're going to talk about this in great detail so the three main barriers and I I can probably name more but I think the three main ones are getting parents to buy in lack of follow-through um, but on our strategies and then and then the toy bag so if you're okay with it I would really love to share some strategies on all of these now.
0: Um, I want to give two legal framework options or um, for the bag of toys things before you, we go to the strategies. Number one, everybody that's listening, please go and check out the scope of practice for the Early Intervention Speech-Language Pathologist on ASHA's website. It specifically says within our recommended framework by ASHA that we are to use natural environments and focus on ADLs with the coaching model, Okay. This is, Carrie and I are not just pulling this out of some magic bag. This is the actual, like, this is what's dictated. If you go to IDEA Part C, it is dictated in there that everything is to be natural environment. Now, let me throw this on you. Different states have different policies. And some states will not reimburse your therapy session if you bring outside resources into the home because it negates the natural environment. So please ensure before you go to do therapy what your specific state policy is. Here in South Carolina, all early intervention falls under the umbrella of BabyNut, and it specifically states within the BabyNut policy that it is to be natural environment and bagless. So everybody that's listening, this is, dude, this is the rubber meat in the road. And in some states, that's, you will not get compensated for your time. Um, So just heads up. Okay. All right. Then the next question, sorry, that's a huge soapbox because that's like, this is the legal framework behind what it is that we're doing. All right. So then what, how do we overcome these? Give us the strategies as I'm all like the law, let's go to joy.
1: (laughs) So Um, getting parents to buy in. So the primary strategies uh, are, are this, okay? You've got to find a way to help parents understand what their role is and help them understand what your role is. So something I would love to share with you is the difference between Care uh, clinician-mediated intervention and caregiver-mediated intervention. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but we were trained, obviously, to do clinician-mediated intervention. We're the ones who are the agents of change. So let me just review this real quickly. Under clinician-mediated intervention, what is our job? Well, the clinician gathers information, educates caregivers, infuses the caregiver's priorities as appropriate, implements the treatment plan during The sessions and we track the progress. So what does the caregiver or the parent do? Well, they observe the session passively, right? They observe it, and then they complete homework left by the clinician. So what we're moving to now is what's called caregiver-mediated intervention. So what does the clinician do under this approach or this model? We still gather information, but what we do now is we observe naturally occurring caregiver-child interactions during those ADLs, right? We simply come in and observe an interaction. Then we use what's called reflective questions and we provide feedback on those interactions. Now, what's amazing in this model is that the caregiver and clinician actually do something together. This is what happens during our visit. We engage in collaborative planning and problem solving during our time together. What does the caregiver do when we leave? They use those very specific intervention strategies that were identified when we were collaborating. They use those strategies between sessions during their daily routines and interactions, and the caregiver tracks the progress. Now, this is what throws people. I have people ask me all the time when I travel around the country and present, how do you keep data in early intervention? And I'm always like, what are you keeping data on? We don't keep the data. We write the outcomes so that they are uh, they relate to something that the child does during their daily routines. So I'm not there during bath time, during meal time, during, you know, story time. I mean, I don't know. So the parent tells me when progress has been met. So once we can help parents understand that this is about caregiver mediated intervention, it, it really starts to lead into what is the role of the parent and what is the role of the early intervention provider. So what is our role? Um, As a provider, my job is not to come in and teach the child how to walk or how to talk or how to feed himself with a spoon, insert any skill you want there. The primary role of the EI provider is to support the parent so they can help the child learn how to walk, talk, or feed himself with a spoon. You see, it's all about, it's a support-based services model. It's not a let me fix deficits model. So in my um, Coaching the Caregiver handout series, I actually created a handout. It's handout number 2-6, and it's called The Parent's Role in Early Intervention. And I actually have an early intervention parent agreement. And this is the very first thing I do with every new family during our first visit together, is I make sure that they understand what their role is in supporting their child's learning and development. So my little parent agreement says, as my child's first and most important teacher, I agree to, and then I have all these bullet points, and I don't have time to read them all, but I'm just gonna read a couple, Uh, I'm gonna read this one to you. Be actively involved in the home visits with my service provider so I can learn effective strategies for supporting my child's development. I understand that it will be helpful to turn off the TV and put my phone and other electronics aside during our time together.
0: Say that again. Put the phone and electronics aside. Sorry. Thank you. Yes. Well,
1: because one of our barriers, you guys, is digitally distracted parents. Let's be yes. very honest that that is a huge barrier.
0: Right? No, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here nodding while I'm perusing your website, looking at all of these forms. And I'm yeah, like, oh my God, there's so many so good it's
1: ones. It's so important. So I instead of, because here's what we do, we tend to be very passive aggressive. So we come in every week and mom is on her phone and we roll our eyes and we sigh and we you know think that mom's going to pick up on these cues that we would really prefer she put it away. I'm done playing games. I'm going to tell you right now, when you've been doing this as long as I have, I come in and I say, this is how our sessions are going to look. I actually have a handout on, um, I think we need to be more structured in early intervention. So I actually show them, this is what we're going to do. We're going to review, um, you know, you're going to give me updates on how things have been going. You know, since I was here last time, we're going to review IFSP outcomes. Um, I have a whole actual script that I kind of follow because I find everybody functions better when, when we know what's coming next, right? When we all kind of have a plan in place. So I want parents to acknowledge that I'm not here to work directly with your, Child. I'm here to help you help your child. Another thing I have in the early intervention parent agreement because I'm so over this too is it says, as um, I agree to cancel the home visit, if my child or another family member is sick or has been sick in the past 24 hours, in parentheses, has a fever, is vomiting has a severe cough, has lice or some other contagious illness. Um, And I put in there so that my provider doesn't spread germs to other family members or to other families, because I just don't think, I don't know if parents think we only work for them. I don't think they put it all together. We come to their house and then take their germs and go to the next house and just spread the love around. So I'm, I'm tired of showing up at doors and the mom going, oh, well, um, his sister just puked, but I've got her in the back bedroom. So you should be fine. No, I'm not interested You know, so, anyways, I think uh, making sure you outline what the parent's role is, I think, is very critical. So, that is why I created um, these forms so that it allows us a way to sit down with the parents and let them know you are your child's first and most important teacher. So, okay,
0: so one thing that I do. Because I have, and I fully admit that I have ADD, ADHD when I come in, <laughs> like I do, like, I feel like I, I think that's why I work so well in early intervention because you never know what you're going to walk in on, like all my stars, right? Um, and also, I think the good Lord put me in this to rescue stray animals. I have found so many stray critters, like just, you know what I mean? Like driving between patients' houses. But um, yeah. Yeah. But I walk in and I tell the family, I'm like, if the TV's on and I'm like, and we have had this conversation because I, like you done this way too long that we're going to turn the TV. I'm like, darling, my ADD is kicking really, really bad today. I'm going to need you to turn it off so that I can focus on you so we can focus on your tiny human. And when I own that. Most people hear ADD, ADHD, and they immediately put this negative connotation to it, right? Like that you can't focus, that you're like completely scatterbrained. Yes, I am all of those things. But then I say, all right, but we're going to turn that into like a superpower. And a lot of the kiddos that we see have a touch of ADD and ADHD, and their parents probably have a touch of the ADD, ADHD. And I have found that that's actually built bridge and open doors for um for more open dialogue by just being like super candid about my little quirks. So, yay, go team.
1: <laughs> so, another one of my handouts is handout 2 10, and it's called Preparing for the Home Visit. And this is something that I actually give parents ahead of time, um, you know, like at our first visit, and I say, before I come for every visit, I want you to take this format and just kind of think about these questions, because here's the problem. If they haven't, have you ever knocked on the door, they open and go, oh, I totally forgot you were coming. So the problem with that is <laughs> that, means, that means they haven't been thinking about child development since I was there last week. And that's going to be a huge issue. So my preparing for the home visit, it has questions like this. These are questions the parent asks him or herself. Do I have anything new to report about my child's development or health since the last visit? Do I have any new concerns, in parentheses, what keeps me awake at night? Uh, since our last home visit, what is a routine or activity that was successful and enjoyable for my child? The next one, why do I think this routine and activity went so well? Did I use any specific strategies? Since our last home visit, what activity or routine was challenging for my child? Why do I think that he struggled with that? What ideas do I have to make this uh, more successful in the future? Um, What issues um, do I want to problem solve with the provider during our next visit? What questions do I have for the provider? Is there anyone else I want to be present during our next session? So what I do is I just go over this with parents and say, I want you to dictate what we focus on during our home visits, but that means you have to think about child development before I show up at your front door. So that's a huge strategy for me, and it's made a world of difference in getting parents to understand what their role even is is.
0: How frequently do you ask those questions?
1: Um, I I tell parents that I want them to go over these questions before I show up for every single visit because I'm going to, you know, when I do, like I have a handout that lists kind of what my sessions all look like, you know, what my schedule is, what I do first, what I do second, what I do third. Um, And so I I always ask things like, is there anything new that happened, any appointments, anything, you know, that's happened since I was here last week? Um, I ask, what is something that went well this week, something you're proud of that your child did? I always like to start with the positives. And then I ask the hard question. What was the most challenging part of your week? I mean, I ask these questions every single visit because since I'm not walking in with a lesson
0: plan, I'm not walking in with a bag of toys. Thank you. Wait, stop. Did you hear that? There's no lesson plan. There's no, no lesson plan because you cannot structure the world of really intervention according to an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. No, that you is your not. lesson not. And Thank so you. what Bye. I
1: really am going to focus on this session is what was the most challenging part of your week? Tell me a routine or an interaction where your child, child struggled, right? Uh, and, and then we, I say, well, then do, are you? should we um, talk about some possible strategies? You know, let's practice some strategies. So um, that, that to me is huge, is creating more of what I would call um, structure in our home visits so that, because I feel like we are not well-supported as EI providers. I'm going to tell you, our agencies just throw us out there and go, don't take in a bag of toys, just go coach. And we're like, but how in the, You know, what, how do we do it? Nobody taught us how to actually coach. And I'm telling you this, coaching is an art. It is an art and it takes years to become effective at it. It is not something you just learn to do by going, hear somebody talk about coaching in a continuing ed seminar.
0: Yes. And I just want to add in the layer that we don't get medical records. I treat incredibly medically complex children. That's my Monday through Friday. And I don't get medical records Y'all, IDEA Part C was originally conceptualized for special education for education. However, we're saving children five years ago, 10 years ago, two years ago that we would not otherwise be saved. And with that comes... We have to know our medicines. We have to know our etiologies. We have to know the, the test procedures that are being completed on these kiddos. And so when you are tossed out there, you turn around and you advocate. You want me to coach? I need to know what's going on. You need to give me the records. Because we cannot do our jobs until we have the data points.
1: Whoa! Yep, I get it. Okay, so I know we're getting low on time. So um, for the second bear, lack of follow through. So here I've got some great ideas on how you get uh, follow through. These are my strategies. The most important thing, and I'm gonna, I- I'm gonna reiterate, there is nothing more important than you do than at the end of the session, you must create a joint plan. We do not leave homework in early intervention because homework indicates extra. As a special needs parent, I'm gonna tell you right now, I am lucky to get through the actual things that absolutely have to be done in a given day. And if you're going to leave me extra things to work on, I'm going to be very honest with you and tell you it's very unlikely they're going to happen. So that's why there's so little follow through, because people want to leave homework. What we do instead is we create a joint plan at the end of every session. And here is how I wrap up every session. I say, based on what we've talked about or practiced today, what do you want to focus on until I come back next week? I love it. That's it. I ask them based on what we've talked about or practiced. Now, some of my families, I need to give a summary. I need to say, now we talked about giving choices, you know, about asking open-ended questions instead of yes, no, whatever your strategy, you know, I don't know what you practice. You may have to summarize it, you know, and give them two or three options, but say, so which one of those do you want to focus on? And then once they decide, well, I think I really want to focus on whatever, then you figure out now when during the day, will it make the most sense to work on that? So you embed a specific strategy. Here's what a joint plan is. You embed a specific strategy into a specific routine. So during bath time, do this strategy. During, you know, when you're at the grocery store. So here's a terrible strategy that SLPs love to give. Oh, just label things in the environment. (laughs) And I'm sure that's a terrible strategy. Can you imagine the parent walking around going, wall, clock, light, couch, chair. That is mm-hmm. not a strategy. Here's a great That's strategy. That's vocab, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Here's yeah. a great strategy. Label items as you put them in the cart at the grocery store. Boom. See, now we're in context. We're in a routine called grocery shopping. And as we hand an object to the child and let them look at it or put it in the cart, we're labeling it, right? So that actually makes sense. So we've a specific strategy embedded into a specific routine. That's the joint plan. That should that should be how you conclude every session. Then what I'm gonna do, and this is the advantage of living in the digital age. We didn't have this ability many years ago, but now we do. I text the family um, because I found, and I always ask one of my first questions is, how do you wanna communicate? Because I am telling you, I can call families and I can call 50 times and they never answer. And I text them and they respond within 0.2 seconds. So I think they're sitting there looking at their phone going, just text me, Carrie, come on, you can do it. Just text me. Like They won't answer the phone you
0: know so um i i'm just laughing because There's some people that I want to text me and some people that I want to call me because like, but like, it's just, it's the dynamic of a conversation. Yeah. But yes.
1: So when we know texting is the mode, I'll text them and check in about three days, four days after I've been there, I'm going to text the family and say, Hey, just checking in to see how blank is going with little Joey this week. So even if they don't respond, what I've done is I have put a little nugget out there that You better believe I'm following up on this. Uh, The joint plan is what holds parents accountable. So if I'm not getting follow through, I'm going to text you three or four days after I leave and say, just checking in to see how blank is going with little Joey. You know, whatever that routine was. Um, I'll see you Tuesday at nine. It also allows me to get a plug in as a reminder, you know, for when our next appointment is. The other thing I want to say is when parents don't follow through, we need to acknowledge that the primary obstacle is resistance to change. Human beings hate change because change is hard. So let's say I'm there and the primary issue is I just want him to... Uh, you know, feed himself. I feel like I have to feed him and I just want him to feed himself. And we, we work on these strategies, you know, maybe stab the chicken nugget on a fork and hand him the fork. You know, I don't, know, maybe we've identified a strategy. So we come back the next week, how'd it go? And mom says, you know, it's just faster if I feed him myself. So you and I are like, wait a minute, we spent the entire last session, you know, talking about these strategies. And now you're going to say that, well, what the mom is saying is change is hard. Do you understand whenever they say an excuse about why they didn't follow through, you need to read between the lines because what they're actually saying is change is hard. Okay. So I created a change scale. Everybody can create one of these. It's just a 10 point scale. Okay. And the main things you want to ask, um, uh, you ask two main questions is on a scale of one to 10, one being not important at all, 10 being the most important thing ever. Um, how important is it for joey to feed himself or for joey to tell you what he wants for a snack you know whatever you're whatever you're working on how important is it because priority must be high so if the mom says well that's a nine or a ten great so we know we're working on a priority The parent. Then you say what's the likelihood you're going to follow through with this strategy and if the mom says you know i got to be honest with you i just can't see myself doing that i'd say it's about a two or a three then for Pete's sake, don't leave the strategy. Do you understand that we need to problem solve some more? If the parent isn't going to follow through, so I now use my change scale um, to, uh, you know, prevent this lack of follow through. But when a parent says, I didn't do it, it didn't work, I forgot, you pull out the change scale, it has changed everything. It's visual, the parent can, and you actually can have a conversation about it, okay? So a couple other strategies to get follow through is you need to make sure it was actually a joint plan. You need to go back and ask yourself and say, darn it, was I just dispensing professional recommendations or did the parent actually say that this was really important to them? So we do need to make sure it's, it's a joint plan. Um, uh, another hard question to ask yourself uh, that you really need to think about is, Am I focusing on the parents' priorities? Are my visits construed as being helpful? Or do they no-show me and cancel me every other week? Because what they're saying then is they're not not—they're not helpful. And so at that point, we need to look at frequency of services. And I know this is hard, you guys, but the families who need us the most are often the ones who cancel and no-show us the most as well. So you have to think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If the family is barely surviving, if they don't know where their next meal is coming from, if they're just worried about getting the lights turned back on, um, maybe they just got evicted from their apartment and they're gonna be homeless in two weeks, do you really think they care about strategies to support speech and language development? Because my my guess is that's not really relevant. So when a family is frequently canceling or no-showing me, I look to see if there's any kind of a pattern. If I'm supposed to be seeing them once a week and they no-show me or cancel me twice a month, then what I say is, you know, I know I've been coming every week, but I'm just wondering, I know you've got a lot going on right now. Would it be helpful if we reduce to two times a month? And I'm telling you, I tend to get better follow-through and better participation when I'm meeting the family where they're at and actually trying to focus on their needs.
0: So the other and, yes, and can I can I add in when you see a family that's going through that, pick up the phone and call their service coordinator and their pediatrician. The referral source to you, because oftentimes that communication does not get relayed back to the people that are in the position to affect positive change for that family. A lot of times pediatricians will know community supports that are available with power, with emergency funding for rent. Um, and, and also and they your social have, worker. If you have a social yes. worker
1: through early intervention, that would be yes. who we'd talk to as well.
0: Yes. So that's, that's your opportunity and, and you don't have to, the family doesn't need to know that you had any hand in getting them their supports because sometimes that can put a family letting them feel kind of out of sorts. Right. Um, But if you just offer supports through the the rest of the habilitative or rehabilitative team, y'all that can open a lot more doors toward healing. So just
1: so, how are we on time Michelle because I want to talk about the toy bag but I feel like it could be an episode in itself. So you tell me, do you want me to cram in a couple statements or what do we want to cram
0: in to cram in a couple statements and then can we do a part 2? Yeah, I think it might be warranted because, you know, we,
1: we, we've already gone. Yeah. So let me just touch on this, that the toy bag, the use of the toy bag by the provider is a barrier to success. And not only does the law mandate that we are natural environment, um, the key principles from OSEP, which is the Office of Special Education um, Programs, they actually outline seven key principles of early intervention. And the number one principle is um, infants and toddlers learn best through everyday experiences and interactions with familiar people in familiar contexts. And what I love about this document is it states what the key concepts are, but it also state what it's not. And so it says principle one is not using toys brought by the professional. It is the number one thing listed from OSEP. Okay. So again, this isn't Michelle and and Carrie Ebert just out there saying, you guys, you need to just listen to us because we know it all. We are following best practice guidelines. It's the law. Okay. So having said that, um, I just want to mention that The main reason the toy bag doesn't make sense, and I'm not going to go into too much detail because I think we could do a whole episode on the toy bag, but the main reason it doesn't make sense is because you are only focusing on the routine of play. That's the only routine you're focusing on then. And so there has to be an assumption then that the parent who is the primary teacher um, for the child sits on the floor and plays with developmental toys for extended periods of time every single day. And I just think a good place to end this little conversation right here is there's research by Dana Childress, C-H-I-L-D-R-E-S-S, Dana Childress. And she talks about when parents actually play um, with their child who has special needs. And the research found that most, pay, most play happens under two circumstances. The child is playing independently near the parent while the parent is doing a chore. So maybe the parent is folding laundry or working on the computer or cooking dinner. And where's the child? Playing on the floor with his toys near the parent. The second thing she found was parents playfully interact with their child during daily routine. So parents playfully interact with their child during diaper changing, during dressing, during mealtime, when running errands, during bath time she found very little evidence that parents actually sit on the floor and play toys with their young child. And it just really, when I found this research, it made me think about my own experiences as a parent. When I would come home from, I always felt guilty. I'd come home from playing with everybody else's kids in therapy, right? I sit on the floor for an hour with every single, you know, child that I was working with and I would come home and have guilt that I couldn't sit on the floor and play with my son in the same way that I just did at work. Because when I get home, I'm in mom mode now. I'm in wife mode, right? So, I mean, we've got to get the big kids to softball practice and we've got laundry to do and dinner to cook.
0: Dishes. Why are there so many dishes? Why does my sink never, I can't see it. That's right. And so it made me realize, oh my gosh, we are
1: expecting, we complain as EI providers that those parents don't even get down on the floor. I don't think they ever play with their kids. Well, guess what? We have research that shows most parents don't. Um, time doesn't allow for it. So that is why in early intervention, we have to stop focusing solely on the routine of play and start focusing on our strategies because strategies should be embedded not only into playtime, but into diaper changing time, into meal time, into running errands because you guys, we are communication experts. Our strategies are about how the parent interacts with the child to support speech and language development. And those strategies don't only apply to playtime. So I have so much information on the toy bag. But again, I think we could talk, you know, for an entire episode just on that. So I'll let you decide how you want to handle this, Michelle.
0: Um, um, I'm going to peg you down for a follow-up part two. <laughs> I would love it. Because we we need that. Oh um, yes. Okay. Well, all right. We yes, we'll get you back for a part two because the the bag thing is the bane of my existence. Also, I did find one really good toy that I will crawl on the floor with my tiny humans. Y'all, it's the flushing toilet. It squirts you water, squirts you in the face with water. And that is, I have two boys, Carrie. They're five and seven. And this is fantastic. And so we, um, actually now do I do this very often? No, but like once on the weekends we get down and we play. And yesterday it was, um, I got squirted in the face with the toilet and that's that's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) I love it. And I, so I just want to say
1: real quick, Michelle, that, you know, on my social media posts every Tuesday is toys. I love Tuesday. And when I post on toys, it's just because people ask me all the time. I need to buy my son a birthday present. I don't take a bag of toys into the natural environment in early intervention. I haven't for years, but I won't get rid of my toys because I have great toys and someday I'm going to be the best grandma that ever lived. But I still think we can talk about how to buy. I could do a whole session on how to buy a high quality store bought toy because I am a toy connoisseur and most toys are crap that are on the market. And so I still think it's important to talk about toys. I'm not suggesting that toys aren't relevant to childhood. They are. But when we talk about supporting young children who are struggling learners, we have to talk about best practice guidelines. And that doesn't involve a bag of toys. So if you want to have me back, I would love to chat with you more about how to do a session without a bag of toys.
0: Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so we're doing that. I love this. They, okay, wait, stop. Squirrel. So, because there's so much that we didn't get to, um, if... I, I like how y'all, what you don't know is before we recorded, I was like, all right, so our goal is to talk for 50 to 55 minutes today. And we just cleared an hour and change and are still going. But um, if folks want to learn more from you, how do they re- recommend that they follow you, reach you? Or like if they um, have like a larger rehab company and want to book you, how what do they do? Well,
1: the best thing is just start with my website, Carrie Ebert Seminars.com. And my first name is spelled C A R I. So Carrie Ebert, E B E R T. Um, but Carrie Ebert Seminars.com has my website. So I, I do um, you know, love to do professional development for um, you know groups of providers. Uh, but also if you follow me on Instagram, um, my handle is K- at Carrie Ebert Seminars, and I also have a professional Facebook page, Carrie Ebert Seminars, where you can either follow or like that. I do daily posts and I mean, literally seven days a week um, and I haven't run out of material yet. So, but every day has a theme, you know, Monday is motor planning, Monday, Tuesday is toys. I love Tuesday. Wednesday is words of wisdom. Wednesday, you get the point. So um, I do a daily post. I just, I love social media. I don't use it much personally, but I think it's the most fascinating way to share ideas and information and strategies with providers all over the world. Some of my favorite uh, people to follow on, on Instagram or, you know, they live in Australia. I mean, how cool is that? That, you know,
0: i do too there's some really good social media pages and from australia yes
1: you bet so that's that's you know follow me um and yeah book me for a course i have uh six six hour courses that i do and i have a whole bunch of two hour you know i just spoke at the kentucky speech and hearing uh convention last week um i'll be speaking at the missouri did, you meet Kelly?
0: did i meet who Kelly Kleinheinz, Dr. Kelly Kleinheins, she's the past president of oh, um, I don't know. I met so
1: many people. I honestly I I just don't know. It was a fabulous, fabulous conference though. I enjoyed it so
0: much. So she's she's a guest. She talks on um, Down syndrome. So she's been on the podcast too. She's wonderful. Yeah. I love it.
1: So yeah, I appreciate you having me on. This was just more fun than I can even express. It was a hoot. I
0: we we put on a pretty good show just saying. Yeah. Okay. All right, hold on one second so I can switch us over to questions, okay? Okay. Hold on one second. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance?